Welcome back to a brand new fresh out of the oven episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. In this week's episode, Chris and I once again forced one another to step outside of our respective comfort zones and read the other's recommended comic books with, let's say, interesting results. Before we dig into that, though, let's uh, first up talk about our nerd news. Chris, you've got a real joke of a news story, but for some reason I'm not laughing. What's up? <laughs> Dave, your favorite Joker is back. Jared Leto, who gave perhaps, we'll call it, the most interesting take on the Clown Prince of Crime in 2016's Suicide Squad, will be returning as the Joker in the un, uh, in the upcoming project, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Leto's performance uh, was not exactly well-received by fans and critics, so this definitely comes as a surprise. Uh, I, I had to check multiple sources on this. I didn't think it was true. I thought it was a hoax. Um, this may do some work in the, in the way of filling in some gaps and helping to create a connected cinematic universe for the DCEU. That's a, I, I still can't say that DCEU, like it doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, however, the timing is quite odd. And I think that this further proves the point that you and I, um, you pr- uh, primarily made this, but we both agreed, uh, on this show that a, a Snyder cut either did not exist or B and this is definitive as of right now with this news just further proves that point what we're getting next year is something else entirely uh Dave I don't think you're exactly excited about this are you Oh, uh, you have the benefit of seeing my face right now. Uh, Our listeners do not. I think I just threw up in my mouth a little bit, to be honest. Look, (laughs) so we've talked about toxicity in the nerd world, and we've talked about, you know, nerds being too negative, and, and the default position of so many nerds is, thanks, I hate it. And I really don't want to come across as either one of those things. But having seen Jared Leto's interpretation of the Joker, I really truly dislike his take on the character. It ranks up there with Halle Berry's Catwoman as one of the worst character adaptations from the comic books ever. His interpretation missed the mark by about a mile. He wasn't even in the right neighborhood of who the Joker is supposed to be. He's simply too far removed from the Joker as I have grown up with him, as I've seen him as a character across comic books, across movies, across the animated series. It simply was not for me. And yes, I'm really wondering what in the world Zack Snyder is doing. You know, the idea that this was some kind of director's cut of Justice League is legitimately just out of the window at this point. He's adding in stuff that was never in the original script, including characters like Jared Leto's Joker via reshoots, and that that's not... A director's cut. Um, he's clearly creating something completely different here. Now, does it have potential to be something good? Certainly. However, some of the news that is coming out about the choices he's making, including returning Jared Leto's Joker, uh, it's just, it, it's got me very skeptical is what it has. In the end, to me, Jared Leto's Joker was the worst thing to come out of Suicide Squad. He was so bad that they didn't even want him uh, in the Birds of Prey movie as a cameo when Harley Quinn breaks up with him. So I'm just not interested in seeing Leto's Joker really ever again. No thanks? (laughs) 
<clears throat> yeah, so like it was really interesting on social media. I had a friend um who actually defended Jared Leto's Joker to me, and that was the first time in the four years since that I've had anybody even like receive it positively. Um and 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 so like it would just completely took me by surprise that somebody was pro Jared Leto. Um and the the overwhelming opinion uh, of people that I've talked to share what you and I feel about that, where this was just completely off the mark and this was something else entirely. Um, so I, I really feel like it's a questionable thing, especially when we're opening ourselves up to, you know, uh, the Robert Pattinson, the Batman film uh, and, and Matt Reeves. You know Matt Reeves' vision for that film, and and them just open openly admitting that there this is a multiverse situation. You know, with Flashpoint, apparently the Flashpoint uh, Flash movie is going to be a Flashpoint film. You know, so so it's really heavily leaning towards a multiverse situation. Why we would want to you know include something that was so poorly received um, by fans and critics alike. And I do want to point out here, and I think this is important to note, that I'm not against different. Uh, Ultimately, Heath Ledger's Joker is significantly different from the comic book and animated series interpretation as well. But it was pure genius. It was a riff on the character that worked on pretty much every level. And so although it was significantly different from the Joker that we all know and love from the comic books, it, it was a quality interpretation of the character. Leto's is is simply not... Um, so I don't mind different. I'm not one of these comic book purists or something, and everything has to be exactly as it is in the comic books. Um, but this is just, it, it just didn't work, not just as an interpretation of a character from the comic books, but as a character on screen, period. And I'm going to go ahead and, and just slide this in sideways here. It is incredibly disappointing to me that every indication seems to be that the Flash movie is going to be a Flashpoint movie, since... The Flashpoint comic book by far was really not a Flash story. Um, So once again, as I've said many times on the pod, the Flash movie should be about the Flash, not about all these other ancillary characters in some kind of alternate universe setting. Anyways, that's just me. Uh, Yeah, so speaking of chilling receptions, uh, Dave, tell us what's going on in your world. Ah, there's sort of rumblings in the fandom world of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina that the Netflix show could be saved or return uh, based on some social media rumblings. Um, So Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was canceled at Netflix in what may be best described as a crime against humanity. And I'm really only half joking with that statement. I love the energy of that show. And as a fan of horror movies, I adore the atmosphere that that this show creates. And really, Netflix has gone on a rampage. They're just canceling quality shows left and right. Uh, Really, it seems increasingly unlikely for many shows to go far beyond the second or third season on Netflix ever. Uh, So as a... um, if I were a creator of a television series, I would 
probably only go to Netflix with my show if I wanted to do a mini-series because they're just canceling everything after a pretty short amount of time. But anyway, uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa recently made an Instagram post that hints that there could be some life left in the show. Uh, Happy October birthday to Chance Perdomo, he posted. I love this picture of him and Kiernan Shipka from our first day of shooting. You're such a light, Chance. I'm so happy you're in my life and in the world. And then he added, P.S. Is Chance's birthday a good enough reason to tease that some extremely wicked hashtag Sabrina Netflix news is coming very, very soon? Question mark, question mark. Now, a lot of fans seem to think that this means the show may have been saved, maybe by Netflix itself, or perhaps finding a, a new home uh, on a different streaming platform like perhaps HBO Max. Um... I certainly wish that were true. Uh, It seems much more likely that there is some news in the pipeline regarding the still-to-be-released fourth season on Netflix, which uh, we're still waiting for. Um, There is uh, a set of episodes that hasn't been released yet. If there is any way that the show can be saved, I'd be all about it. Uh, I'd really also love it if Sakasa would return to the comic book that actually inspired the show. He hasn't worked on that series since the show started, which has been several years now, and the comic book... Uh, only released four or six issues or something and and kind of just stopped mid-storyline. But really, in either case, the show being saved or the comic book coming back, I'm not very optimistic right now. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I know nothing about that show, you know, especially, you know, as our fans know, um, I, I at least used to be a big chicken when it came to, to horror-type films and television now. Um, through, you know, the nerd nightmare segment, um, by, by one manner or another, whether that's, uh, you know, by force, I'm, I'm definitely opening myself up more to things like this. So, um, I know that it's well received and, you know, even, you know, members of my family like rave about this show and love it. Um, and I know that this has been one of your go-to recommendations every time, about every time that we, you know, spoke about what to watch even before we started the show. So I do remember, you know, the commanding presence of, of Kieran and Shipka, you know, even when she was on Mad Men, you know, when that show was, you know, current, I, I watched that show religiously. So, um, it was always intriguing. I, I just never had like the courage to, to hit play, but now that, um, you know, my uh, my tastes have been um, diversified, if you will, a little bit. So I, I definitely would would uh, consider checking this one out. Um, but but simply, you know, and I and I completely echo your sec- sentiments on on you know Netflix and and you know they're doing well streaming shows that are doing well, you know, numbers wise and and are receiving critical acclaim like this one and one day at a time and, and other shows that are just being, you know, snipped. It's really questionable as to, as to what approach they're taking. They're, they're having success and I don't know why they're making the decision to, to pull the ax on, on so many great shows. I'm assuming it must have something to do with trying to generate buzz with new content in order to try to bring in new subscribers since they're on a subscription model, uh, a show that's been running for five, six, or seven seasons would probably not bring in necessarily new subscribers, although I think it would go a long way in helping keep the subscribers they have. Um, it, it's it's becoming increasingly increasingly upsetting to me to see quality shows just die off one after another after only a couple of seasons. Um, it, it makes you wonder about investing in Netflix if so many quality shows 
oftentimes don't even get a, a really a chance to say goodbye. I'm fairly certain that the news that Sabrina was cancelled actually uh, was not received by the cast and crew until they had filmed already uh, a finale. So they didn't get to finish the show. And I know a similar thing happened recently to the um, the wrestling-themed show Glow, I believe it's called. They too, after a second season, uh, did not get picked up and, and kind of just end in the middle of a storyline. And to me, uh, as, as a consumer... I think that's the great um, the great cardinal sin of any television show is if the network kills it without allowing closure. It completely taints the show for any future viewing uh, and really will keep new viewers away from reruns or or you know streaming uh, this show in the future, knowing that there is no definite ending and that it ends mid storyline. Yeah, and that's ab- absolutely you know the case for my household. I mean, like. We we cut the cord. We don't have cable. Um, it's been that way for for several years now. So we have virtually most, if not all, streaming services. And you know, I very rarely use Netflix now. Um, and you know, I even downgraded my subscription because there are a lot of factors at play when when you when you look at you know a Netflix subscription. Number one and probably the most important is they have actual competition. Now you have, you know, services like Disney plus HBO max Hulu has been around for a while, but you know, with, with the, uh, you know, Disney owning the rights of that and packaging, um, you know, Disney plus Hulu and, and ESPN plus and that whole deal. So they've got more competition. You got Peacock coming out from NBC, CBS, all access, you know, the market is not as, scarce as it was you know when when netflix was really holding the reins and then you know netflix keeps raising the their prices um you know it's up to like 17.99 for their the the subscription that i had you know that which was the highest one and and that starts to take a toll um when you have especially with you know something like hbo max which you know carries a lot of original content plus all the great features and all all the wonderful library that HBO has for 14.99 you know and and Netflix is sitting there at 17.99 you know it's really really questionable like this whole slash and burn you know kind of method that they're taking I feel a nerd big talk on streaming services coming on perhaps in the future I think that might be an interesting topic to discuss I think we have a lot more to say with that But instead, let's go ahead and move on to our nerd big talk for today, where we are going to have some mutants, some vampires, and some zombies. So stick around. We'll be right back after this break. I'm Jesse. And I'm Ryan. And we're the hosts of Not My Type. One couple, two personalities, and we're taking three million internet quizzes. Approximately. For non-serious conversations about serious fandoms, check us out at Not My Type. Each episode, we take BuzzFeed-style quizzes to explore a movie, TV series, or a book. As many fandoms as we can get our hands on. New episodes come out each Wednesday, and if you want to find out more about the show, go to notmytypepod.com and anywhere podcasts are found. Pretty much everywhere these days. See you there. And we're back, ladies and gentle people, in our Nerd Big Talk segment today. Once again, 
uh, Chris and I are exchanging uh, favorite comic book stories to see if we can convert, quote unquote, the other to some of our thinking. And I had to right away get weird again with my recommendation. I recommended uh, The New Dead Wardians, written by Dan Abnett. Uh, in post-Victorian England, nearly every one of the upper classes has voluntarily become a vampire in order to escape the lower classes who are all zombies. Into the simmering cauldron is thrust Chief Inspector George Suttle, a lonely detective who's got the lowest speed in London, investigating murders in a world where everyone is already dead. When the body of a young aristocrat washes up on the banks of the Thames River, uh, Suttle's quest for the truth will take him from the darkest sewers to the gleaming halls of power. Chris, let's go ahead and dig in. What did you enjoy about the story? Oh man, I am such a like detective file. Like most of what I enjoy, whether it's books, whether it's short stories, whether it's film or television, um, it's mostly detective stories. Um, I watch Sherlock religiously. Um, I've been waiting for, you know, an, another season of Sherlock for years and years. Um, I've read nearly everything that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes. Um, I watch a lot of, you know, police detective shows. I watch Monk. I watch Psych. Um, I, I love a good detective story. I love a good mystery story. So, like, that immediately sucked me in. Um, and I even texted you. I was like, oh, this is just, you know, what if Sherlock was living during the zombie apocalypse? Yeah, and uh, for that, I absolutely adored it. I kind of came across this book really by accident. Uh, it was sort of... Uh on special at an online retailer and i was like well this looks interesting and it's a good price so i'll check it out and uh, I, I thought it was definitely well worth the uh, price of admission now were there any things that you didn't enjoy so much about this story not really like i i thoroughly enjoyed it it was while it was well out of like my wheelhouse of things that i would typically pick up and read i enjoyed almost everything about it if i had to pick something I thought it was a genius twist um, that the curse came upon by a failed spell. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, the failed spell uh, to resurrect Prince Albert to to like try and make Queen Victoria feel better and happy that she had not lost her husband. Um, I thought that was a genius thing. And I wish if I had to nitpick a little bit, I wish they would have played that out for a couple more pages and panels. Um, and I felt like that was something like so genius. And I wish that they would have just like played that out a little bit longer for a little bit more emotional impact. Um, and, and it would punch been that much more of a, an emotional gut punch. Um, if I had to say one more little thing, it, it was a tough book to find. I, I, and it's not on comiXology. Um, so and this is no fault of Dan Abnett or, or any of the creators is this, this book should be much more readily available. So, you know, we need to get the word out about this, this mini series and, and make it more available and easy to access for people to read. And I want to say this was a, a vertigo book, right? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so a lot of the vertigo stuff seems to be a little harder to find these days, which is a shame. I know vertigo has kind of gone the, the way of the dodo. Now it was an imprint from DC comics. That's kind of been, 
I guess, replaced by DC Black Label. But Vertigo is so storied and has so many good stories that came through that label. Um, it would be great if they would just take like the Vertigo library and and dump it in some kind of subscription service or something. Yes, I, yes. I think they could. I think they would easily get my money for for that. So, Chris, when you when you began reading this series, you uh, texted me pretty much uh, after the first issue and referred to my reading habits as uh, the weird bleep. Uh, do do you find it difficult to step <laughs> away from superhero comics and explore some other genres and comics like this? To put that into context for our listeners, the, there's a meme out there with Lisa Simpson and there's a coffee pot pouring into her mug and she has this look of just like, yeah, that's the good stuff. And the, the coffee pot is labeled as that weird S-H-I-T. So yeah, um, yeah, this was, like I said, this is definitely out of my wheelhouse. I I pretty much, it's it's kind of crazy. It's almost like an OCD level of loyalist behavior when it comes to my reading uh habits like we've talked about this before on the pod like when i read spider-man i read all of it when i read x-men i read all of it and if i like take a break and read something else it's almost like i feel like i'm in an affair like <laughs> uh, when i read I, I i i wish i was joking about that i i really feel like dirty and scuzzy like uh you know like i have to explain my reasoning here so um, it's something that I'd, I've definitely grown with, uh, especially over the course of this podcast, is, is just opening myself up. And, and, and I'm not being unfaithful to Peter Parker, or I'm not being unfaithful to the X-Men if I'm reading something else. So, um, but yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, it was definitely, it, and, and even if I do read something else, it usually is superhero you know, aligned at the very least. If I if I read something that's more street level, it's usually like a B book of some superhero, so it's still in the same universe, even. Um, so this was definitely one of the few issues or runs where I've read something. I, I, I did read a couple of issues of the Django and Zorro crossover, which was, you know, awesome. Um but other than that, it's been pretty much strictly superhero comics. But, you know, it's it's it was definitely an eye-opening experience. And, you know, much like the Nerd Nightmare segment, I'm glad that you made me do it. Mom, I'm, uh, it, it, I always feel a little weird when you say you made me do it. But, uh, but I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> that, uh, that you're enjoying some of this uh, more out-of-the-ordinary content. Um, so there is some commentary in this book that I found extremely interesting, uh, particularly about... Uh, social classes, you know, with most of the young, the vampires being upper class, while the zombies are primarily, you know, lower class citizens. What's your take on that aspect of the story? Did you feel like that really worked, or was it just uh, not not really functional in the story? Oh, I thought it. I thought it was really meta, and I thought it was really interestingly and beautifully done um especially in in a time period you know you and i are big history nerds when you when you look at a time period like victorian england when you know it's been explored through television uh and literature you know and umpteen types of media um is you know the the socioeconomic class system of of england and what it was like at that time it was a really really interesting take and and a really I love it when I come across an author that just is just really smart and intricate and and very um, 
I'm trying to think of the word, very methodical in their choices for symbolism like that. So I thought it was really, really interesting, especially the one that really drove home to me was um, was was subtle himself, um, you know, being like dead inside and losing all the passion in his life. And I thought that was a really interesting metaphor for being upper class and having all these material things, having this cure, having this um, invulnerability in the face of this plague. But then you sacrifice all of that for the true meaning of life. And I thought that was really a really beautiful way to 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 illustrate that point. See, I'm exactly 100% with you. Um, Abner does such a good job in this book. His his writing is so sharp and so good. And I seem to recall, you know, seeing his name in association with like cosmic um, Marvel comic books, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Nova, that sort of stuff, Annihilation uh, from several years ago. Um, and I've not read any of that stuff, but this book and revisiting it actually makes me want to dive into a part of the Marvel comics that I have not really explored before just because his writing is just so sharp in this uh, and i can imagine he he does amazing things even on the superhero side well and I, I i when you told me that he did stuff for marvel i immediately went to marvel unlimited and looked up you know his creator profile but yeah a lot of nova and annihilation like you said but also the majority of his marvel work looked like it was on punisher which is a character that i don't really you know spend a lot of time with so um you know like you said definitely intriguing and and makes you want to you know expand your your reading views you know uh, going forward you know before i um recommended this to you i actually sat down and read some of uh, other people's reviews to see if you know this might be something that you could actually enjoy and one of the things i noticed as a pattern in the reviews is that quite a few people kind of ripped on the art a little bit um the art was pretty minimalist in this series. It kind of, to me, was reminiscent of something like uh, Batman the Animated Series. You know, very clean, simple lines, uh, which I really like, generally speaking. Did you feel like this minimalistic art worked, or do you wish it would have been more realistic, more detailed for this particular story? Oh, I thought it was gorgeous. It was the first thing that jumped out to me, was how stark and different it was. It stood out, and it was unique. Um in 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 a medium like comic books it it can be really really hard to stand out um but there are a few distinct artists like when i see umberto ramos's work i know it's umberto ramos when i see russell dodderman's art i know it's russell dodderman when i see jim lee's art i know that's a jim lee piece um and this immediately evoked um one of my favorite artists, Marcos Martin, who did a lot with the Dan Slott Spider-Man um, and was one of my favorite artists that Dan collaborated with on that run. Um, so I thought it was just beautiful. And there's something in that simplicity where you're not overcomplicating things. Um, Stuart Eminent is, is, is a great realistic artist, um, as is John Cassidy. I, I really appreciate the realistic nature of their art but i also appreciate the opposite end of the spectrum when you have something that is just very very basic and and really diluted to what it is especially with a story like this when you're dealing with things like zombies and and the undead vampires and and things like this nature when you're dealing with victorian england something so different when you have i think it just i think it sings uh, so i would definitely disagree with those reviews see i would too um different uh unique is a hallmark of art in my book 
And this idea that we have to have some kind of house style or that everything has to be samey uh, is very uh, disappointing to me. Uh, it almost, those kinds of criticisms, like it needs to be more detailed, it needs to look more like this artist or that artist, yeah, that almost reminds me of what they're doing with the Walking Dead comic book right now. They're reissuing this whole series in, in color. And I'm sure that's a, a great way to make additional money for a series that was originally printed in black and white. But to me, the charm of that series, in part, was the black and white art. I thought it defined that book in a very specific way. To the point, actually, that when the TV series initially premiered, it was my fondest wish that they would have actually filmed the series in black and white as well to imitate the feel of the comic book. So sometimes artistic choices are exactly that, genius artistic choices, and we, we should respect the artist for that. Now I will I I want to make sure that we credit INJ Colbard for this because like I absolutely I cannot say it enough I love the art on this and especially the expressions on the characters faces particularly George Subtle like I, I thought they were mesmerizing. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. So how will this uh experience with the new Dead Wardians uh influence your reading choices moving forward? I think it it really tickled my, you know, novel loving heart like i read a lot of literature i I read a lot of classical literature particularly from the 19th century um you know like i said with sir arthur conan doyle i've i've previously stated that alexander dumas is my favorite author of all time so there's stuff out here like this um you know I i definitely want to to definitely go a little bit off the beaten path and a little bit less mainstream um I, I still, you know, like have my heart with with the properties that I love, but it, you know, you, it, it would benefit you to, you know, watch an indie flick every, you know, once in a while rather than, you know, the big blockbuster film, you know, and you really end up enjoying it. So, I definitely want to open up my mind and and be more open minded towards reading new things that are different. Well, I'm I'm excited to hear that. I will just go ahead and make a blanket recommendation right now for anything from Vertigo. Uh, the Vertigo imprint was something so special, and if you get a chance to pick up something like, you know, Why the Last Man, for example, which is one of my all-time favorite series. I've heard or, that recommended to me time and oh, time yes. again. Or or even um, even Fables, which is just such a fantastic series and wrapped up a, a few years ago and was just absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, anything Vertigo produced there for a few years was just consistently gold and always so different from what the mainstream was producing. Doggone it, Dave. There's just so much good stuff to read right now. You just said Why the Last Man, which makes me think of Brian K. Vaughn, who wrote that. And I still have to go back and read all of Saga. I've only read like the first two issues of that. Ah, there's so much good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Now it is Dave's turn. Um, It is no secret that I'm a massive mutant fan and the X-Men reside near and dear to my heart. Um, so I assigned him what I, what I really feel is one of the most essential reads, um, if you're going to start reading X-Men. And I, I assigned him with Marvel graphic novel number five, better known as X-Men, God Loves, Man Kills, written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by Brent Anderson. It was released in 1982 by Marvel Comics. Um, the book served as a primary inspiration for the fic, uh, for the film X2, X-Men United with... I would say that is a very, very loose interpretation, and and we'll get into that a little bit here in a few minutes. But um, away we go. Dave, now, Chris Claremont really made a name for himself writing the X-Men. 
this, if memory serves, is your first experience reading his work with those characters. What are your initial thoughts on that? So obviously my familiarity with the X-Men is kind of um, uh, surface level, really. I've watched uh, some of the animated series back in the day. Um, I've read, I've watched the movies, and I read uh, Joss Whedon's run at this point. And so this is, yes, my first brush with uh, Chris Claremont. And he seems to get the characters for sure. From what I know of the X-Men, the way the characters are depicted here really fits perfectly with how I picture them from the animated series, from the movies. Um, also, I can see where P Kitty Pride kind of emerged from. I really love that character in Whedon's run. And this is pretty much her already, uh, spot on in 1982. Uh, so, in short, I really liked what I saw of Claremont's writing here. It was uh, It was very good. Uh, so, what did you enjoy most about uh, God Loves, Man Kills? You know, we've talked a lot about how the X-Men should uh, have something to say. This is a property where uh, being meaningful is kind of built in to the premise. There should be meaning. It should have uh, something to say about prejudice and how to overcome it. And I think the story did exactly that. It had meaning. Uh, it featured dilemmas such, uh, dilemmas, such as the heroes having to work with Magneto, a villain, or how religion can be used to spread hate, and many more really deep topics. And for a story that's fairly short, it went very deep. And I love that this story was not just something that was about punching bad guys. It had meaning. It had something to say. I really appreciated that. Yeah. And what I love, um, I love so many things about this story. And um, a lot of X-Men fans are, are familiar with the mutant metaphor and the mutant metaphor meaning, you know, you know, groups are discriminated against, whether that be racially, um, you know, sexual orientation. A lot of, a lot of, a lot is made about mutants be standing in for any group that is discriminated against. And, you know, they really just chuck that right in the fire, that first panel of, you know, these two black children after their parents are assassinated by the purifiers that they themselves are killed by these purifiers and, and strung up like they were not messing around. And I, I really think that, um, you know, it not being like in the main title of uncanny X-Men and it being in a graphic novel series that Claremont, um, you know, really, really went for it. And I thought it was really effective and really poignant. And to your point about, you know, um, you know, religion being misused and, and Stryker being this compelling villain and, and not like a super-powered supervillain like Magneto. Um, it's not Dr. Doom. It's, you know, this religious individual with like this following. And, and one of the, the lines that really stood out to me when I was, you know, looking at it again in preparation for the pod is when, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but when, you know, I think it's Professor Xavier says we're not fighting, uh, you know, a supervillain. We're fighting, you know, like an idea and, and, and something like that. And I think that makes, you know, the story all the much more compelling. I'm totally with you there. And in fact, I think some of the very best comic book stories go beyond, you know, punchy, punchy, fighty, fighty, as I like to say sometimes. Um, I, I have to sort of think a little bit about Greg Ruckus' run on Wonder Woman. Uh, yeah, at the beginning of that run, she writes a book about how, you know, people should lead their lives and sort of guidelines for happiness and how to, you know, protect the environment and all that stuff. And she ends up literally in a war of ideas with another character who's not super powered. Uh, and those sorts of things, um, I think they ring true in a lot of ways, uh, particularly 
uh, in 2020, where there are a lot of disparate uh, ideas out there about, you know, what, what the country should be and, and how people should behave towards each other. So the notion of a war of ideas that goes beyond punching uh, is always relevant. Uh, and I was really glad to see that something from 1982, because of that, holds up so well even today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what were some things that you didn't enjoy so much about this title, Dave? You know, there wasn't really a whole lot uh, that I didn't enjoy. Uh, I, I will freely admit that a lot of stuff kind of um, jolted me, but I think that was probably by design. You know, the opening scene that you mentioned about the uh, the two uh, black children being killed really uh, jolted me. Uh, anytime there's violence against children in a comic book will jolt me anyways, but that was... Um, it was definitely uh, eye-catching. Uh, there was also a scene where uh, Kitty Pride uh, drops the N-word, which uh, kind of completely made my head turn. Uh, in in not in an insulting way per se, but she sort of uses it as what what if he would have called you this uh, instead of you know talking about being a mutant and trying to you know draw those parallels uh, between you know. Uh, groups that experience prejudice. But that too was kind of like a, one of those things that kind of jolted me. As far as something I just outright didn't like, there wasn't really anything. Uh, you know, some of the caption writing was a little overwrought, I thought, but that is pretty typical for the 1980s. Uh, there were a few places where the art felt a little muddled to my modern sensibilities. But again, you know, that that's changed a lot over the years. For the time period, this stuff is just pretty much spot on and right in the realm of what you would expect from a comic book in the 1980s. Yeah, and, and if memory serves, I feel like one of the primary reasons that Claremont is such an effective writer for, for groups like the X-Men is, you know, he's, you know, a Jewish man. And, you know, he, I believe he had parents who lived through the Holocaust, so he's seen this stuff firsthand and that particular scene with kitty pride when she uses you know a, a, a term like that at first like it was completely jarring but then it it, it just use it, it brings that much more emotional resonance to the situation and and that much more depth and i totally agree with you there um now this story serves as a very loose source of inspiration for x2 x-men united as we stated in the open with some various serious alterations. Um, William Stryker is like this military individual, and it's very much a product of its time in 2003. You think of like the Bush administration and, you know, the Patriot Act and things like that. So um, which storyline do you think is better and why? That's that's the toughest question I think you came up with for this one. You know, they, they both work in their own ways as, I think, you know, in part reflections of their time. Um, as you mentioned, uh, there was a lot of, you know, military related, you know, Patriot Act related, you know, stuff in the air at the time when, when X2 came out. And when you look at the 1980s, that's sort of, you know, peak televangelist sort of stuff going on in the 1980s. So I think they both reflect their time periods very well. You know, obviously X2, like most X-Men movies, felt a little too much like the Wolverine show, uh, and, and really... Um, that was not a good situation for many of the other characters who didn't really get a, that big of a chance to shine in any of these movies. I mean, X2 is, you know, the debut of uh, Nightcrawler, and really the, the only good scene of him in that whole movie is the opening. Um, he really didn't get more of a chance to shine later in that story. It felt like a character with a perfect introduction that never was followed up on anywhere in the story. 
But, you know, I think I appreciate that there are more characters that get a chance to shine in the original comic book storyline. But the two are pretty different animals, I think. And they're saying different things, uh, ultimately, I think. The the undertones of, of prejudice and, and all of that, I think, works much better in the in the comic book story. Because it's not quite followed through all the way, even with the striker character in the movie, if you compare it to um, what actually ends up happening in, in the comic book story. But again, they're, they're pretty different animals. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and that's probably, while I do appreciate Hugh Jackman's portrayal of Wolverine, uh, you know, that's one of the most frustrating things about the X-Men film franchise is everything was centered around, you know, Wolverine. Like, um, William Stryker did not create, you know, Wolverine. He was no affiliation with Weapon X, like they say in the movie. Um, and, and the one small you know, thing that keeps me coming back to X2 is Nightcrawler, who's, you know, one of my top two, if not favorite, you know, character in the X-Men universe. And, and Alan Cummings portrayal of him, I think is spot on and it's wonderful. And, and, and as you said, that, that first scene uh, is probably the best. Also his scene with Storm, who I have my, you know, feelings about Halle Berry being Storm, but, um, you know, that was a really poignant scene from Nightcrawler's perspective, but, yeah, I, I totally agree with all of that. Um, and I will also say that ultimately the X-Men movies failed a lot of their characters, period. It feels like when you sit down and kind of watch the X-Men movies back to back, that you end up having good individual scenes for certain characters. The Nightcrawler opening in, in X2. Uh, there's a couple of really great Quicksilver scenes. Like there are individual scenes that shine a nice spotlight on a character or their abilities, but then those scenes are never properly followed up on. And so the X-Men movies as a whole from Fox never feel cohesive in any way, shape, or form. They're a collection of scenes, some of which are brilliant, most of which are not. And if we could take just all the brilliant scenes and string them together in one good story, out of all of those X-Men movies, we might have had one really good X-Men movie. Yeah, and, and, you know, to our previous point about the Wolverine show, you know, Days of Future Past is kind of regarded as, as one of, quote-unquote, the good ones. But then again, that's a Kitty Pride story, um, and they made Wolverine take over that storyline. So it's incredibly frustrating to just see such a misuse of characters. And I, I'm ready to hit the reset button, and hopefully we'll get some good content going forward uh, with regards to films. Absolutely. Uh, so, Dave, in a recent episode, we reviewed the film The New Mutants, and you stated that the trope of uh, a negative one-dimensional view of religion was particularly irritating to you. Did you find the same problem here? You know, that's a tough one, too. I don't think it was a huge problem here. I think the trope has really worn out its welcome over the years. I I'm willing to forgive a little bit, considering that, you know, this did come out in, in 1982. Uh the idea is still effective if used in moderation. It just shouldn't be used every time that a person of faith is depicted in, in a movie or a comic book or any kind of story. You know, and I, what I really appreciate about this story and why I think it really works is that Stryker doesn't actually really believe his own religious message. To him, at least that's the sense I got, it's really just a tool for him to get sort of his revenge for... for you know, his own child ending up being a mutant. So he's really 
he, he's not a true believer himself. He's just kind of using that to get what he wants and to manipulate people around him. And I think that's a much more interesting angle than what we saw in New Mutants, where this priest is just like, oh, you're different, it must be a demon. Um, so are there people who genuinely believe hateful things from a religious perspective? Absolutely. Um, it, within fiction, though, that has become such a boring trope that when you see a different take on it, even if it's slightly different, like what we see with Stryker here, where he's not a believer himself, but really manipulating those around him, I think that's much more interesting. And I do think that it is very common for people to use faith for their own purposes. The good thing in a story like this would be to make sure, and I don't think they really played this up, like you have a character like Nightcrawler, who by all accounts is a pretty religious dude, for him to serve as a counterpoint to that, to, to kind of show that, hey, this is something that happens. What Stryker does is something that happens, and it is a problem, but it's not everybody. No, absolutely. And I, 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 w I would guess if there is one image that comes from this book that is probably the most famous panel is when Stryker is pointing at Nightcrawler and saying, you think this is human? Um, and it's one of the things that really stands out to me, you know, when I think of this title. Um, and it is a really, and I, the reason I think it, it works here is because it is a nuanced conversation. There is depth to it. It's well thought out. And, you know, um, you have, you know, specifically a character like Nightcrawler who is deeply religious, who's, you know, goes on to receive his ordination as a Catholic priest, you know, um, you know, in the, I believe it's in the 90s or early 2000s, something, something of that nature. Um, but, but, it, and, and that's, you know, like I said, that's why I think it works here is because it's just not, this is the one thing. Um, and I feel like, you know, what you have with like New Mutants is, you have people who are, you know, have bad experiences with religion or people of faith. And, and it's just this overcorrection, you know, when you hit the side of the road and you, you know, steer the other way too quickly. It's just this overcorrection and it's all a mess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dave, um, did you have any continuity issues uh, reading this issue? Yeah, really, you know, uh, for the most part, no, except there's one thing that I really want to bring up, and that is, who thought it was a good idea to call Kitty Pride Ariel? Um, I was getting some seriously <laughs> odd Little Mermaid vibes, and I know this predates that and all that, but um, that that really threw me for a loop uh, to me that, you know, Kitty Pride is Shadowcat. But, you know, I actually, um, I read that this was originally intended to be a standalone non-continuity story, and I think I can see that it works really well as such. Uh, much like DC's The Killing Joke, it was sort of squeezed uh, into continuity retroactively. Uh, and as such, I didn't have any major issues. I mean, everything makes sense here. It's pretty self-contained. The characters were clear. For the most part, it's a pretty classic X-Men lineup. Um, so the only thing that really threw me for a loop was uh, Kitty Ariel Pride. Yeah, this is... Um, if memory serves, this is a, like a really weird time um, where like the the actual character of Kitty is fascinating. There's great storylines. They just couldn't quite nail her her team code name, her alias, if you will. They they went through like Sprite was the first one, and then it went to Ariel, and then they finally settled on Shadowcat, and we were all relieved when they finally got there. <laughs> 
Um, so Dave, one of the reasons that I love this book so much is it really, um, features some of my favorite mutants and they really, really shine in this book, um, particularly, you know, Magneto, you know, some other people have said, like, if you love Magneto, this is the book that you need to read, or this is why Magneto is so awesome. Um, Kitty is also fantastic in this book, and, and, you know, she goes for it. She's like, I don't care. The scene where she tells Stryker, that's that's my friend, and I don't care what you think. It's, it's really powerful, and it's really beautiful. And, 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 you know, to give it some context, this is – Kurt was – you know, previously a character that she was very, very afraid of, you know, upon meeting him for the first time because, you know, he teleports and all of a sudden there's this blue fuzzy elf looking individual right here. So that was, you know, a pretty poignant character moment for her. And then Kurt is just the best. He's he, he just keeps his head down. He does the right thing all the time, even when it's difficult, even when people are awful to him and treat him like crap. He still wants to do the right thing. Um, which character stood out the most to you? Well, I'll I'll just be honest. To me, it was Kitty Pride yet again. Um, it's just a, such a great character, and she she sort of hits the same spot as a character to me, like on the DC some DC side, somebody like Stephanie Brown does. You know, there's a there's a a, a, a truthfulness and an optimism in her, uh, and a and a can do attitude, and, and I love that about the character. Uh, really, I just. I've come to adore Kitty Pride, and, and the more I read about her, the more I like her. I really loved her early confrontation with this prejudiced person, and when Colossus stepped in, it wasn't to protect her, but to protect that guy from her. And I think that perfectly sums up Kitty as a character. Um, so yeah, Kitty by far was, I think, my favorite in this story yet again, even though she wasn't the focal point. Um, I really liked her in this again. Magneto was pretty interesting, too. I... Um, I think I suffer a little bit from like seeing way too many weird interpretations of that character. He's kind of hard to nail down for me at this point. I always thought, you know, like what they did sort of in a good chunk of the first X-Men movie, not so much the ending, um, where they tried to sort of capture, I think, what was the inspiration of the characters of Professor X as sort of this Martin Luther King uh, person and Magneto more of this this Malcolm X individual. I think that's when the character to me always has worked the best. Uh, and and some of the more extreme villainous uh, turns that the character has taken that I've seen in the past, particularly stuff that I've read in the Ultimate Universe, the less said about that, the better, um, makes, makes it sometimes difficult to really appreciate the character. So when I see a depiction of him like this, where he is complex... Um, and more sympathetic, ultimately. Um, I appreciate that a great deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, you know, um, Sir Patrick Stewart and Sir Ian McKellen were, were one of the few strengths of the X-Men film franchise, particularly in that first film um, and, and elements of the second film. Uh, the less said about the third film, the better. Um, how is this going to influence your reading choices moving forward, if at all? So I think I'm I'm willing to explore more of Claremont's X-Men run. Um, I really like the writing here. I get the characters it uh, for the fact that it is kind of in continuity um, and of a particular era. I didn't feel lost. I was able to pick up very quickly who people were and what was going on and what the thrust of the story was. And I know uh, there are so many fans of what's going on in uh, current X-Men comic books. Um, but after a couple of different attempts of trying to get into it, I, I, I'm struggling with that. Um, this 
uh, Claremont's take seems to ring truer, at least to me, from my experience with X-Men so far. And so I think if I'm going to read more X-Men moving forward, I'll probably be looking to the past for the time being, uh, probably to Claremont's run. Yeah, if if you're wanting to go that route, what I did and what I would definitely recommend is reading Giant Size X-Men in 75 by by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum, which they just did like a, a tribute to for like the whatever anniversary 35th, I think 35th anniversary, which is really really cool. Um but definitely start with Giant Size X-Men number 1. That's where you get like all of the new characters like Storm, her intro, Nightcrawler's intro, Colossus, um, Wolverine when they join up to the team and then go into Uncanny from that point on and then that's you know pretty soon after is where Claremont takes over. Sounds fantastic I think that's probably what I'm going to be doing Alright folks that's uh, it for our um, Nerd Big Talk for the week uh, after a short break we're going to be back with our final Nerd Nightmare and it's a doozy so stick around Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before it, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. And we're back, ladies and gentle people, for our final Nerd Nightmare for October 2020. And this time, instead of looking at a perennial classic, we're going to look at something a little different, namely The Haunting from 1999. This is a remake of the movie of the same name from 1963, which stands in the view of many as a true horror classic. The Haunting from 1999 is much like the hit series on Netflix based on the novel The Haunting of Hill House. It stars Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Owen Wilson, and Lily Taylor. Chris, as our horror movie noob, please share your initial reaction to this movie. Well, um, a little bit of, you know, setting the scene, why we visited this film. Um, So... (laughs) I was scrolling HBO Max, kind of looking for for new things to watch, and I found this movie, and I was like, oh my god, I remember watching this when I was 11 years old, and it really messed me up. And I sent that with a screenshot to Dave, and his response, the pal that he is, great, let's watch that for our final nightmare. (laughs) So, I I have seen this movie before. And it was one of the, you know, it was one of the few horror movies that I saw growing up that really terrified me. And, and, um, so it was really interesting to revisit it, um, through a different lens. Um, you know, and here's my itemized list, like I always do. What a year for cinema, 1999. I, you know, I just, I was transported back to like my middle school years and all these movies that were coming out. Um, it's just insane when you think about, what was happening in 1999 and into 2000, how many movies were coming out. Um, 
and the fact that Catherine Zeta-Jones was at the peak of her prime, and like this, this film is kind of the odd one out. Um, you think of you know one of my all-time favorite films, The Mask of Zorro. She was in Entrapment with Sean Connery. All those other movies she was making during the stretch, it was like almost like a Hall of Fame kind of stretch for her. And this one, you know, doesn't get referenced quite enough. Um, for me, um, it's a, a, it's some bullcrap that Lily Taylor only got like fourth billing when she's clearly the main character in this story. So it was really really weird. Um, and it's no surprise that she made her bacon in horror movies. I looked up her IMDb page and like it's horror movie here and there. Um, there's something about her face, Dave, that is just haunting. I don't know. It's like her facial structure and, and like the expressions that she made. The way that they did her eyebrows for this movie is creepy. Like it, it's just pun intended haunting um the, the way that the choices that she made in this movie so it, it, it you know it's pitch perfect casting there um one of the first observations that i had is screw nell's family like they, they are awful like her sister and brother-in-law are like evicting her from the the apartment that she's lived in for god knows how long her little nephew needs to be like slapped around a little bit like i usually don't advocate we talk about violence against children but that kid needs to be taken out behind the woodshed okay he is awful um uh and i could relate definitely to being like the responsible sibling like she like since she was a small child, like she took care of like her disabled mother, and you know, I I I can definitely relate to being like the responsible one, and you know, siblings, you know, uh, you know, go off and do other things. Um, I will say I love Liam Neeson. I've said that on this podcast before. Taken is fantastic. It's great to revisit. Schindler's List is is one of my you know all time favorite films. But it is a tough look for our guy, Qui-Gon Jinn. He is manipulating these people as a parapsychologist. It is not a good look for our guy, Liam Neeson. Um, <laughs> most of the CGI, especially the children, did not age well. I do realize that this... It's hard to believe that this movie came out 21 years ago. But it, it's also incredible to think that for the most case, unless you're in the DC film universe, that we have pretty good CGI now. So this did not age well. Uh, those little children coming out of the carvings and, you know, in the blankets and, and the curtains were, were really laughable. Um, I, I know I've said this before on these horror movies, but I did not feel sad or bad when Owen Wilson's Luke Sanderson was killed. That dude was a creep. And especially in the age of, like, the Me Too movement when when... You know, Theo is definitely, you know, I am not into you. I'm, you know, at least by and you keep making these advances to me after I keep shunning you. I did not feel bad when he was beheaded. Um, the weird thing that was really like turned my ear up. Maybe I missed something. But how did she all of a sudden know that Carolyn was her great great grandmother? That was a convenient plot turn. Um and the the really puzzling thing is when they come and open up the gates, like, after the morning. Number one. Okay, number one. After the first night, why are you staying there? <laughs> why are you still there? Like, after that first night, Homegirl almost, like, loses an eye due to the harpist cord. And y'all are like, yeah, I feel safe sleeping in this house. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> um, but But another, like... 
you know, head turner was why are Dr. Marrow and Theo just walking away after they open the gate? They leave their cars behind. They leave corpses behind. Owen Wilson's decapitated body is just sitting in the fireplace and they're like, deuces. And then, you know, I don't know if Nell's body is there or if it magically went into the door but, you know, it was just really, really sketchy for them to just bounce like that. And they're walking nine miles to town. I don't know, man. They just needed to walk it off what they just experienced. <laughs> they just needed to walk it off. You know, I remember this movie. I was 15 when I saw it. Um, I saw it in theaters. And it really creeped me out good and proper at the time. I watched it in a dark theater. And this was really uh, at a time when CGI was sort of starting to come into its own. I mean, this is the same year that Star Wars The Phantom Menace was released. There was a lot of CGI in 1999. You know, I, I don't mean to sound unkind, but I think in retrospect, the 1963 original outclasses this remake in about every single way. Now, don't get me wrong. The design of the movie is absolutely incredible. I love... Uh, Hill House, I think it's marvelous to behold. It's sort of this perfect gothic haunted movie setting. Um, everything else, though, phew, geez, that's tough. The characters feel flimsy at best. The motivations are paper thin and keep shifting back and forth depending on what scene you're in. There's really, as you said, no reason for them to stay. And yet, here we are. You know, Zeta Jones' character was really an uh, an early attempt, a sort of a very 90s attempt at LGBTQ inclusion, uh, which, you know, on the one hand, I applaud. And at the other hand, there was, uh, in the 1963 original, this, this beautiful subtext uh, between these female characters. And th- this sort of tears the subtext of the original painfully into the text and rather than doing something interesting with it, her character just becomes an excuse for Owen Wilson's character to act like a creep. So, yeah, I, I had a problem with, with that aspect. And yes, I remember none of the characters' names, and I'm proud of it. They are so forgettable. You said Theo, and I was like, which one was Theo again? I do not remember. The <laughs> CGI in particular has not held up at all. And, you know, when it comes to horror movies, as I have gotten older, I've become a bit of a, a, a snobby purist when it comes to special effects. The practical effects in horror movies always age significantly better, are creepier, and more fun to watch. And what was creepy in 1999, at this point with The Haunting, is almost humorous in 2020. I uh, remember when the... Um, the etchings of the children came alive on like the bedposts or something that that gave me the willies in 1999 and this time when i watched it i just had to chuckle at how bad it looked so in short i really did not enjoy revisiting this movie i think in the future i will stick with the 1963 original or netflix's excellent adaptation uh, in uh, the first season of The Haunting of Hill House, although I will say it is significantly different from the source material. But what they did with it was uh, was creepy and, well, pun intended, haunting. I, I will say that this further reinforces pho- photography from the 19th century, the 1800s, is super creepy, and that part worked very well. Uh, any any of those early photographs just creep me out, man. Um, a lot of people go to like um, a lot of touristy places and take old school photographs. I'm not interested because that stuff looks creepy to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Theo was Catherine Zeta Jones's character. Um, okay. 
But uh, that's it for Nerd Nightmare. We are back to nerd commendations next week as we as we hit November, and I've I've got some 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 shored up. So so thanks for coming along the ride and and pointing and laughing at me. Um, although I can't see you doing it, pointing and laughing at me uh, as you listen to me be a big old chicken. And that's it uh, for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a rating or review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're available everywhere podcasts can be found, including Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Most recently, we've joined Amazon Music, so you can now ask your Alexa to play the Nerd Byword Podcast. And not to mention, you can check us out on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, at NerdByWord, on Facebook, at TheNerdByWord, and you can find us individually on Twitter and Instagram, at ThatNerdDave and at ThatNerdChris. Um, we always appreciate your comments, criticisms, as long as it's constructive. Um, so check us out, and, and we'd love to to interact with you. And we, we always appreciate all your support. Give us that five-star rating and review. Um, and we look forward to to uh, joining you in November as we return our nerd commendations and for another episode with you guys. So uh, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>